You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Little man, what now? The simplest explanation for the conservative comeback is that hard times cause people to lash out at whoever's in power. In 2010, that happened to be the Democrats. Ergo, their rivals staged a comeback. But surely the two parties are not simply interchangeable like Coke and Pepsi. They're able to control their own fate to some degree, to differentiate themselves from each other. Besides, History provides enough examples of public sentiment moving consistently in a particular direction to show that it need not always flop aimlessly back and forth. Another widely held view attributes the conservative resurgence to white racism, which is supposed to have been whipped into flames by the election of a black president. And indeed, one may point to some spectacular flare-ups of bigotry directed against the president and his party. But individual prejudice and a handful of name-calling incidents should not be enough to indict an entire movement, no matter how repugnant we find that prejudice in those names to be. Regardless of the racial fears some partisans hold in their heart of hearts, the new conservatism does not systematically generate racist statements or policies, and its leaders take pains to converse in the polite language of diversity. Yet other commentators seek to explain the right's revival by pointing to the ways it has leveraged the Internet, just as Barack Obama himself once did. Conservatives are using the web to recruit followers. They're blogging like mad. They're all a Twitter with rageful tweets. In this view, the message is nothing and the medium is everything. And you could probably get King George III himself elected if you built an awesome-looking website and got all clickety-click interactive and shit. Old ways of thinking about conservatism have proved equally unsatisfactory in the new situation. For years, it was possible to understand the laissez-faire revival of recent decades by noting the various forms of mystification in which the debate was always cloaked, namely the culture wars. From the 1970s up to the years of George W. Bush, the great economic issues weren't settled by open argument or election year slogans. They were resolved by a consensus of political insiders in Washington while the public fought over abortion and the theory of evolution. But the conservative flowering that has taken place since early 2009 is different. For the first time in decades, the right wants to have the grand economic debate out in the open. The fog of the culture wars has temporarily receded. Should you sign up for the online discussion forum maintained by the Tea Party Patriots, one of the leading organizations of the revived right, you will see a warning that, quote, no discussions on social issues are allowed that participants are to restrict themselves to the subjects of limited government, fiscal responsibility, and free markets. The conservative movement's manifesto for 2010, the so-called Contract from America, mentioned not a single one of the preceding decade's culture war issues. 
When the Washington Post conducted a poll of nearly every Tea Party group in the nation, it discovered that social issues such as same-sex marriage and abortion rights did not register as concerns. And although I attended a number of Tea Party rallies over the last few years, I never once saw an anti-abortion appeal on a protester's sign or heard one from the podium. Now, this is not to say that the right proceeds about its work while renouncing confusion or mystification, just the opposite. In defending capitalism, the leaders of the latest conservative uprising don't really bother with the actually existing capitalism that we've lived with for the last few years, even though capitalism's particulars have made for scary headlines on the front pages of every newspaper in the land. They generally do not discuss credit default swaps or the deregulatory triumphs that made those instruments so destructive. They do not have much to say about the massive oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico, you know, the news story that shared the front pages with conservative primary victories all through the summer of 2010. They don't have much to say about foreclosure gate, the revelation a few months later that banks had cut all sorts of legal corners in order to hustle borrowers in default out of their homes as quickly as possible. Instead, the battle is joined at the level of pure abstraction. The issue, the newest right tells us, is freedom itself, not the doings of the subprime lenders or the ways that the bond rating agencies were compromised over the course of the last decade. Details like that may have crashed the economy, but to the renascent right, they are almost completely irrelevant. What matters is a given politician's disposition toward free markets and, by extension, toward the common people of the land, whose faithful vicar the market is. Now, there is nothing really novel about the idea that free markets are the very essence of freedom itself. What is new is the glorification of this idea at the precise moment when free market theory has proven itself to be a philosophy of ruination and fraud. The revival of the right is as extraordinary as it would be if the public had demanded dozens of new nuclear power plants in the days after the Three Mile Island disaster, if we had reacted to Watergate by making Richard Nixon a national hero. So disjunctive, does this spectacle appear that onlookers naturally assume the newest right's motivations must lie elsewhere? The movement's positions bear so little relation to lived reality that observers sometimes feel they need pay its actual statements no mind at all. But this is a mistake. If we wish to understand this latest right-wing triumph, we must begin by taking seriously what the right actually says at its rallies and prints on its signs and shouts from its podiums. We must pick our way through the tangle of conspiracy dreams and libertarian fancies that make up the right-wing renaissance. And, by all means, we must read the conservative texts themselves, the words of the politicized TV newsmen, the oratund phrases of the radio talkers, the end-of-the-world rhetoric that you used to notice at the tea parties. This is a book that seeks to explain hard times conservatism, to understand the enthusiasm for an anything-goes economic arrangement that persists in spite of all the failures and bank-breaking catastrophes that our previous efforts to achieve such an arrangement have inflicted upon us. 
free market capitalism isn't really the sort of system for which people rally in the streets, even in prosperous times, that they would do so in the months after the freest part of the market deposited so many of their fellow citizens onto the scrap heaps of unemployment and bankruptcy tells us much about the genuine disgust abroad in the land, about the raw need to raise one's voice. It also tells us much about the way that the resurgent right has capitalized on the nation's anguish to create a protest movement that virtually promises to make the anguish worse. This is the story of a swindle that will have terrible consequences down the road. And though it sounds curious to say so, the newest right has met its goals not by deception alone, although there's been a great deal of this, but by offering an idealism, an idealism so powerful that it clouds its partisans' perceptions of reality. Now, constructing an alternative reality would normally put a worldly political movement at a profound disadvantage, right? But this case is different. The reborn right has succeeded because of its idealism, not in spite of it, because idealism in the grand sense, is precisely what our fallen economic world calls for. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.